to episode of the Purple Notes Unveiled podcast. I'm Richard Cole. Uh, if you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, well, we're only two episodes in, uh, but if you're over from the Amari Purple Talk days, or if you're a current listener or watcher of Amari Music Talk, then definitely welcome back. All right, so... Had a lot of fun doing the first episode. I hope you're enjoying things so far. Uh, This episode, I want to revisit a topic that I've been very passionate about since the Amari Purple Talk days. And that is reasons why the time, as in Morris Day and the time, belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All right. So before we get into the main topic, uh, if you're listening to this channel on your favorite podcast platform, be sure to download, share the content. Uh, If you are watching the video version of this episode on Patreon, um, if you or if you would like to see the video version, become a Patreon supporter at any level, uh, lots of perks for joining, also lots of exclusive content, as well as early access to our other shows, such as Amari Music Talk and the Comics Box podcast. Um, if you are watching segments on YouTube, or again, if you're also a fan of Amari Music Talk or Comics Box podcast, on YouTube, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and that helps keep things rolling for the Amari Communications channels. All right, so now with that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into the main topic. And again, five reasons why the time belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All right, so... This originally started with me 
uh, way back with a post that was on uh, Jesse Johnson's Facebook page. Uh, so if you're not familiar with Prince or Prince-related artists or you have little or no information about The Time as a band, uh, Jesse Johnson is the guitarist for that band. Uh, to me, one of the greatest guitarists ever, whether it's rock, funk, uh, definitely someone whose name should be mentioned more. Actually, I have a video uh, that discusses my three favorite funk guitars, which uh, Jesse Johnson is one, Jimi Hendrix is another, and Eddie Hazel. You can find that on YouTube, so be sure to check that out. Um, but yeah, many years ago, uh, probably about less than 10 years ago, probably, um, there was a post uh, that was on his uh, Facebook page uh, regarding that they should be nominated. Uh, so some of the reasons why I covered here, um, so I'm just going to read his post and it starts off with the time for rock and roll hall of fame. The time should be nominated for induction into the rock and roll hall of fame. Every one of the time recordings are in the millions of copies sold category. We were also influential regarding our style, look, music, sound, and dance. Okay, so that's definitely one valid reason why. Uh, let's see, so it goes on to say that that's excluding our individual achievements, record sales, etc. So, of course, you know, the time had pretty short shelf life as a band. Uh, they have reunited a few times uh, since the original lineup was together in early 1983. Uh, but yeah, but each and every one of those members have gone on to achieve uh, an amazing amount of success, which, you know, uh, two of them, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, phenomenal success. Um, but, you know, Morris Day, success as a solo artist, Jesse Johnson, success as a solo artist, uh, Jelly Bean Johnson, a um, couple of big hit records for Janet Jackson, as well as New Edition, uh, Monty Moyer, uh, success. Uh, again, with Janet Jackson, well, with Pleasure Principle, uh, also Alexander O'Neill's first uh, album, um, basically three songs on side one of that, um, one of those a really big hit for Alexander O'Neill, If You Were Here Tonight, was written and produced by Monty Moore, so, you know, phenomenal success Jerome uh, as far as you know one of the greatest hype men um, success in the family a member of a later lineup of uh, Prince and the Revolution co-star of Under the Cherry Moon uh, strong pretty strong supporting role in Purple Rain and Graffiti Bridge um, like I said looping back to uh, Jelly Bean Johnson, um, Janet Jackson's Black Cat, major, major hit. 
Um, a lot of folks should recognize his accomplishments for that more. But yeah, you know, not counting those individual successes, but you know, that all springboarded for them being members of the time. So yeah, definitely, you know, not exclude, you know, in, you know, acknowledge them for, because like I said, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are rock and roll hall of fame inductees, but that's two down five to go, but that's individual achievement. Um, you know, he's just saying, just saying, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, definitely stage presence, um, you know, um, as far as R and B bands, you know, by the early eighties, you know, the kind of, you know, in the beginning, the funk bands, you know, maybe say Sly and the Family Stone had a unique image and look, you know, that was very influential into the 70s, you know, maybe starting with, you know, the Jackson 5. If you look at the old photos or performances, you know, their style of dress is very similar to Sly and the Family Stone's. Then when you get more into the mid to late 70s, you know, it's sort of all these sequin and suits and space suits and, you know, just far out clothes. But, you know, the time brought it back, you know, that kind of zoot suit or 1950s style of dress with the baggy pants. Like I said, the suits, the hats, um, you know, it made them very accessible, you know, for someone like me, you know, being a teenager in that period, you know, 1981, 82, 83, you know, 84 and beyond, you know, that's somebody you could look up to and emulate as far as the dress. You can hit either hit thrift stores or you went down to the mall and, you know, you, you know, you came suited and booted, you know, you dressed up. I mean, you know, my thing back when we had a a band, you know, was kind of a cross between the time and kind of, you know, Miami Vice, you know, kind of those images meshed together. You know, that was our personal look. But like I said, that was an influence on not only cats like me, but, you know, ready for the world. And, you know, bands after that, um, you know, phenomenal influence i mean stage presence i mean you know you had some strong funk contenders like you know cameo strong stage presence um lakeside strong stage presence you know a couple of bands you wouldn't want to follow time falls into that category they were the band to beat you know they would give prince a run for his money every single night so you know it's again valid reason for them to be inducted. Um, I did a video like in the very early days of, oh, not a video, but uh, I devoted an episode um, regarding the reasons why the time should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, I did a lot of research about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, there's a lot of, politics, politics, elitism, uh, some of that fallout uh, recently with 
Jan Werner trying to promote his book saying that African-Americans, women, you know, weren't intelligent or articulate or, you know, they weren't on the level of a, a John Lennon or Bob Dylan when, you know, we know that is absolutely false and no slight to those two. Those are two of my favorite artists. But, you know, there was some cats he picked for that book that <laughs> didn't deserve the that type of accolade. Yeah, they great music. Yeah. But, you know, come on, you know, it's that, but that's if you want to see that video, I have that video on YouTube to see what my thoughts are about that. But, yeah, I mean, not just with, you know, um, artists of different races, but or even, you know, women. Um, it's very elitist where there are actual whatever you want to call them, classic rock bands, um, rock bands in general, whether they're from the 1950s, 60s, 70s or whenever that have been long overdue in getting inducted. And a lot of times year after year, there are artists that have little or nothing to do with rock and roll that have been inducted over people that should have been, you know, first round, you know, <laughs> they should have been first round picks for the, you know, inductees for the Hall of Fame. But yeah, but um, like I said, doing that research and I'll kind of go over some of that again in this episode. And, you know, basically what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is supposed to do is document the history of rock music and the artists, producers engineers and other notable figures who have influenced its development okay and this was founded by Ahmet Ertegen founder and chairman of Atlantic Records in April on April uh, excuse me on April 20th of 1983 and Ahmet I mean like I said founder of Atlantic Records you know basically amongst the pillars of you know what rock and roll was to eventually become you know we talk about little richard we talk about chuck berry but atlantic records definitely you know with um you know starting with i think the success of ruth brown and ray charles you know just to name two and then later into the 60s um wilson pickett uh aretha franklin um so, you know, and this was the man that signed all of those artists, Led Zeppelin, um, you know, gave the Stones a second career in the 70s uh, by being the distributor of the Rolling Stones independent label. So, you know, that, you know, that's the founder of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the museum itself was dedicated on September 1st of 1995 and amongst the categories um, that you have you have the performers category um, which I have often said should be called like the legends category um, I guess over the last decade or so I think uh, the, the awards have been broadcast on HBO and maybe even longer than that 
Uh, but when you and, and part of the reason you get some of these inductees too, I think it's become like this ratings game now. Like these are the legends, yeah. But when you turn on that show, they're the main focus. So you have a segment to, devoted to one nominee, and then another segment, and then they kind of do the retrospective of the career. They get somebody that was either an influence, you know, that was influenced on the, you know, by whoever being inducted or someone close to the band to do the induction speeches and, and everything. Uh, but like I said, that's the ratings game, but there's other categories that they kind of just like the Grammys. They kind of just kind of gloss over it real quick. Um, give it a couple of sentences, you know, maybe they'll flash a picture here and there. Um, or, you know, some acknowledgement in the middle of the ceremony or something, but they don't get the attention as the actual performers. Uh, so you have that, the performers category. Uh, singers, vocal groups, bands, and instrumentalists of all kind. And... You know, we talk about number one that, you know, just their success, you know, they've, you know, made a record at least well over 35 years ago. <laughs> so they're eligible first round for the, just for that by itself. Um, You know, when I did that segment uh, back with the Amari Purple Talk. There were, you know, people that were definitely championing that idea. But you had some detractors. Again, for, you know, for the listeners that aren't aware of Prince and just how much of a genius he is and the associated artist or anything. Um, the time was put together basically by Prince and lead singer Morris Day. And the band was put together because they are very talented musicians. They go way back with Prince, you know, um, when Prince, Morris Day and Andre Simone had their band in high school, members of the other members of the time, which were called Flight Time at the time, you know, they do Battle of the Bands, the rivalries, kind of what you see in the movie Purple Rain. That was sort of like... Um, you know, kind of like a dramatization of what that scene was like coming up in Minneapolis. But even though Prince wrote the majority of the songs, um, played the majority of the instruments, or it was, you know, Morris Day on drums for like 80% of those time recordings, you know, a band was needed to, to handle the stage presence, you know, and it's, it's not unlike, say, the Jackson 5, you know, where you had in the beginning the Funk Brothers and then later the L.A. session musicians that were there when Motown moved to California. But, you know, Tito and Jermaine still had to represent on stage. They had to learn, you know, those songs note for note. And, I mean, you learn it from... You know, God, um, James Jamerson and um, 
I forget the guitar player's name. Um, one of the guitar players, well, I mean, you know, there's Dennis Coffey. That was later with, during the Temptations, the Norman Whitfield era of production. Uh, but I can't think of the guitar player's name. Um, you hear My Girl, you hear all of those early, you know, that's that guy's um, guitar playing on that. And, you know, if you ever watch Standing in the Shadows of Motown, if you can find that, definitely check that out because like i said the, these guys were no joke you know we think james brown's band was tight you know we think um the time or prince and the revolution was tight um the musicians down in stacks and the muscle shows you know motown was representing as well but again you know it's a situation where you know you have you know or even a group like the monkeys, you know, where they were just brought in just to sing. Even the Beach Boys, after a while, you know, Brian stopped using, you know, Dennis and Carl and, you know, Al. He stopped using them and started using the same musicians that Phil Spector was using, you know, the Wrecking Crew. And I think, you know, some of them might have played on some of the Jackson's Fives early stuff as well, or, you know, at least maybe after 71 or 72. Uh, was playing on a lot of that as well. But again, you know, the band, the Jackson Five or the Beach Boys, they still had to go out and perform. And it's the same kind of situation with the time. And there is a category in which they do qualify, even just, you know, if you want to get really technical and say, well, Prince did everything. We don't know why they, well, there's a category in which they, as the time, qualify to to be in that so let's see moving on about the rock and roll hall of fame um the award for musical excellence which is formerly the sidemen award actually i kind of got ahead of myself here okay so in in talking about where you have the band that represents on stage, even if, but still, you know, um, kind of, uh, kind of all over the place with this one. But if you look at the time, like I said, even though it was Prince on most of the instruments, um, Moore's Day on drums for eighty percent of it, you know, you still had recordings in which Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were a part of, which Jesse Johnson. His guitar playing is featured on those recordings, on some of those recordings. So they do qualify. But if you just want to look at it from the fact that they're the band that's out there, then you have the sidemen category where you have the Miracles, the Famous Flames, the Comets, the Midnighters, the Crickets. They were inducted by special committee in 2012 due to controversial exclusions when the lead singer was inducted. So, yeah, it was Buddy Holly, but it was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Yeah, Buddy Holly wrote the songs. He was the one out front singing Peggy Sue and all of that. But 
the crickets was his band you know they were representing the studio and the stage they were they were synonymous you know people like the the beatles took notice of the crickets hence hence the one of the influences on the name you know they were the band um the famous flames you know one of the early lineups of james brown's band you know instrumental no pun intended but very key to not only studio but the stage as well um there's a category for early influences uh such as country folk jazz and blues whose music uh inspired and influenced rock and roll artists such as the ink spots and jimmy rogers hank williams howlin wolf muddy waters lewis armstrong Nat King Cole, Billie Holiday. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy now because I think the waters have kind of, it, it's gotten confusing now because you have this thing that got created called classic rock where it's about, you know, cats with long hair and guitars and whether they're just doing hard edge rock or whether they're doing progressive rock. But when you get into the areas of progressive rock, you do have jazz. You do have classical influences that come in. So if, say, Neil Peart was influenced by certain jazz drummers, then, yeah, by all means, those early influences should be inducted. Um, I know there was controversy regarding... Uh, Dolly Parton recent with her induction and yeah I mean she's a bona fide country singer but country music had an, a direct influence on rock and roll it's just that by the 70s you know it became this thing and also to corporations as they were buying independent record labels um, buying radio stations, then it became less about artistic and creative expression and became more about product. So then with product, then you do have these labels. Oh, well, this is definitely rock, classic rock, and we're going to market it to a certain demographic. This is supposed to be R&B, and we're going to market that to a certain demographic. And this is the this is how we think of hip hop and we're going to, you know, market it in this direction and anything that makes it creative or unique. It's out of there, you know, we're regulated to the underground now, or if you're a legend nine times out of 10, you're not getting respect, you know, unless you are a Bruce Springsteen or, you a Paul McCartney or something but I mean still they, even they have to navigate those waters but that's the nature of the industry so now to you know the untrained ear then you're falling prey to these labels when really in rea reality it's about what we like you know it's about you know I, I like you know I like funk. That's my lane. That's my center lane. But there's still rock and roll, you know, from the 50s on, you know, I'm I'm there listening. 
uh, jazz. I'm there listening, whether it's traditional, whether it's fusion, you know, some of the kind of more poppy stuff. Yeah, I could kind of do without. But again, if it's traditional, if it's fusion, if it's Donald Byrd, if it's Herbie Hancock in the 70s, you know, I'm there for it. If it's Stanley Clark, I'm there for it. You know, and like I say, going back to tradition, if it's Eric Dolphy, if it's um, Ma Jamal, if it's going, you know, um, Coltrane, if it's going, you know, um, Charlie Parker, you know, it's it. I'm there for it. Um, you know, I don't listen to a lot of country, but yeah, I can tune into it every once in a while, you know, and appreciate it for what it is. And, and, I can get into it, you know, blues, and, you know, hip hop, reggae, you know, it, it, it's about what you like. It's about what reflects your personal taste and your personal situation. So it's when it gets to these corporations and marketing and product, when it gets to the politics of rock and roll hall of fame, then, like I said, there is it, not just racism. It's like I said, well deserved. If you calling it rock and roll, and there are people that have been legitimately doing rock and roll, whether it's the classic rock or they keeping the traditional rock and roll going or whatever, that should you know I don't know is it Grand Funk Railroad? They're not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, I can we can go on about who's not in it. Um. You know, people talk about the monkeys like they, you know, yeah, they were a TV show. Yeah, they were manufactured, but they eventually did tour as a band. You know, they had, you know, Mike and Peter uh, got Mickey and Davey on board to be a rock and roll band. Um, their records did sell. Their records were written by some of the great rock and roll singers. Carol King, Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil, um, Neil Diamond, uh, Harry Nilsson, you know, and their influence on, you know, like I said, there's a bunch of 80s groups that have been inducted. And, you know, they, you know, they had some great records, but you knew it was the strength of those music videos. Michael Jackson, the strength of his music videos that elevated a lot of those people in the 80s to legendary status the monkeys, the Beatles, but primarily the monkeys with the TV show. That's your early MTV. That's that quick cutting editing style during the musical performances or the musical sequences, even though hard days, night and hell by the Beatles were the prime influence. Monkeys were the next level with that. And, you know, they don't get respect. Well, it's like, well, the beach boys are in there, but like I said, they may have played in the beginning, but they weren't playing when it counted to when it when the album started to become an art form like Pet Sounds. They weren't on it except for singing, just the singing part. So, you know, that's when it kind of gets into these sort of murky, murky waters. So award for musical excellence, formerly the Sidemen Award veteran session and concert players who are selected by a committee composed of primarily producers. And the award gives some flexibility to dive into things and recognize some people who might not ordinarily 
get recognized, such as a Joel Pesserman, who's president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay, so in this area, you have people that get inducted because they were famous, you know, producers. You know, they didn't sing on the tracks. They probably didn't even play instruments on at least 100% of the tracks, maybe 2%, 5%, whatever. If they did that part at all, that get recognized. Then you have industry people, you know, um, radio um, program directors, DJs, um, record, uh, like I said, record company executives that have received this award. You know, which is which is cool because, you know, if it wasn't for certain record company founders, you know, then, you know, say Chuck Berry wouldn't have gotten on or Little Richard wouldn't have gotten on or the Beatles wouldn't have gotten on or whoever, you know. So, yeah, I mean, they deserve some acknowledgement. And the nomination process is controlled by a few individuals who are not themselves musicians reflecting their personal taste rather than the views of the rock world as a whole. And again, you know, like I said, it gets into where it feeds into this sort of elitism that, you know, it's not, you know, if you're sitting in the suburbs somewhere, you know, and it's your personal record collection and then maybe your parents personal record collection and this was the music you were exposed to these are the radio stations you were exposed to then yeah like i said we're all music snobs to a point you know we're we're all guilty of oh this is music oh that's not music over there how dare you say that that's not music of course no this this is rock and roll or this is funk this is soul this is what this is you know it's because like i said if it's a corporation you know where it may be in the when you had djs like murray the k this was the, one of the first djs to do this but i think all djs were doing this to a point but i think he went out of his way to fight some of that corporate elitism that was saying okay we're going to market this to that group or this is the sound we're going to market that single and aim it at this demographic Murray the K was one of the first to you know okay well you got the hit single but I like this album track so I'm going to play the album track and a lot of you know music in the 70s you know, there's stuff that I'm like, that was never a single. I used to hear that on the radio all the time. No, they just love that track or they love the B side to the single. You know, some hits became hits because the A side is like, no, that's the single. And they're like, well, no, this song on the B side sounds a lot better. And then that became the hit. You know, there's a lot of stories in regards to that. But getting back to the time. You know, again, you have their accomplishments on record. You know, they had hit singles, definitely in R&B for sure. 
Uh, but when you look at and especially the first album where, you know, they had the look down pat, but they hadn't quite defined Morris Day in the time yet. So when you listen to that first album, it's conventional with funk, like uh, Get It Up. That was originally written in for Prince intend, you know, Prince wrote it intending to give it to this funk band called Brick and they turned it down. So that became the Times first singles, Get It Up. And again, conventional, funky, you know, radio friendly, R&B. And it was a hit. It was like, I think, in top 10 uh, for sure for R&B. Uh, you also had Cool, which is, you know, a bonafide dance floor song. Hands down, it's funky. It's, you know, but again, it's accessible, accessible funk, you know, another big hit. Two, so you had two hit singles. Uh, there's a couple of ballads. Um, Girl is One, which um, I know one time uh, PC Munoz had pointed out that apparently Prince was very influenced. I forget the name of the track, but there's a track on the Black and Blue album by the Rolling Stones. If you play it, it's the same. <laughs> I mean, not the same, but you could tell Prince was definitely influenced by that and used it. Where I originally was hearing like a Hall and Oates influence listening to girl but see there you have it you know so you have that it was a it's a ballad it was big radio hit on r&b stations but the origins of that were deep rooted in again you're a rock and roll folks and it also had after high school which was this big new wave number which like i said by the time you got to the second album they had clearly defined what the time is as a band sound and image wise. So, but before then this was sort of like, you know, you had that sort of new wave track after high school. And that was like, you know, kind of kid Creole in the coconuts. It was very new wavy. So it, again, you compete with the cars, uh, you competing with whatever it could be the Ramones you could be competing with, or, you know, so it had, that and again you know that little tiny like 80 to 84 was sort of that cultural exchange like i said with new wave with punk you know punk and hip-hop were you know standing shoulder to shoulder next to one another like for you know respect in the grand scheme of music whether it's pop music or rock music or whatever or just music in general you know a lot of those little punk clubs, you know, they'd have the punk rockers, you know, they'd have a, a, a punk act and a reggae act on the same bill in those days, you know, late 70s, early 80s. You had a lot of that going on. So, we, you know, we kind of forget because of things like Purple Rain with the time and like I said, massive R&B group. But, you know, they were the type of, you know, they brought you some funk. They brought you kind of like what you would get with Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, it's funky, but you're going to have some hellified rock guitar as, you know, whether it's not buried in the mix. It's, you know, it's either the support system of that track or it is the main, you know, focus of that track, you know, especially if you're talking more Funkadelic than Parliament. But, you know, the time were that next level. They were the 80s extension of that. And just for that alone, you know, like I said, the look, the image, the sound, 
They were very influential. You know, a lot of bands started throwing out the horn sections, you know, when the time and was, was you know, Prince first, but the time second and maybe more so because, you know, the time were more R&B accessible and especially in this era, 81, 82, 83, very pre-Purple Rain, you know, Prince was hitting on all cylinders just with the R&B crowd. It was the R&B crowd that was coming. It was, but a lot of us back then, like I said, we, you know, a certain number of us, we listened to the cars. We listened to the police. You know, we would tune in, you know, if you didn't have cable to tune in to MTV. You know, there was Don Kirshner's rock concert that would come on late at night here anyway, back in the day. And... That was sort of my introduction to those groups. And it was like, I like that sound. And you had, like I said, it, it was a cultural exchange. You know, you had Cameo doing like Alligator Woman. You had Jermaine Jackson, Let Me Tickle Your Fancy. It was that kind of cultural exchange going on in the early 80s. So the time were very influential in that regard because this was a standalone band and it was an original band. You know, it was brand new at the time. And like I said, they had the look, they had the sound. Uh, their stage presence, you know, the, you know, they were the band to beat, you know, Jerome, bring me a mirror, you know, and the coordinated steps, some of the coolest steps for a standalone band, you know, some of the best musicians on the planet you know each and every member of the time can stand up to whoever whether it's funk whether it's rock they can stand up to each and any one of those and command respect in that regard um like i said you know jesse johnson to me is that extension um jimmy hendrix eddie hazel jesse johnson also, you could throw in the middle of that Ernie Isley from the Isley Brothers, but that's another topic, and that will you will see that on Amari Music Talk soon. <laughs> but Jesse Johnson, like I said, a, a guitar player that should get a lot more respect. Um, you know, just look up old footage um, from the time, like the around the nineteen ninety nine tour. You know, so anything like 1982 and 1983 in support of the 1999 album, they were the opening act for Prince. Check that footage out. But you can check any of that original seven lineup. Heck, even the lineup of Morris Day and the time that they have now. Again, the band to beat. They are the band to beat. So that alone, stage presence. Stage presence. Um, I said number three, like I said, it doesn't have to be, if you don't do the performers category or the legends category, you could do the, you know, what is it? The, the session men, side men, touring band, whatever you can definitely make, you know, put them in under that category. Um, 
you know, so that's it. You know, I mean, those are great reasons. I don't know, maybe kind of saying five reasons, but like I said, this is sort of an extension of the Amari Purple Talk episode uh, spotlighting why they should be considered. Um, but like I said, you know, Morris Day, Jesse Johnson, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Jelly Bean Johnson, Monty Moore, Jerome Benton. You know, they all deserve as the time. And, you know, if you want to extend it to some of the subsequent members like uh, Freeze, who is a, a damn good bass player. Um, and then you got Tori, who's the guitarist. Um, I mean, personally, I mean, I, you know, hold Jesse Johnson in the highest esteem when it comes to the time. Uh, but Tory Ruffin, he's held his own within that group. Um, has a unique style of playing. Um, and to me, I think his, I enjoy more and more over the years from uh, when he came on into the, in the 1990s uh, through now, you know, it's always good seeing him as part of the lineup and, you know, he nails those solos, you know, like I said, that's not a easy job coming in behind Jesse Johnson, but you know, he's worthy of the mantle. He's worthy, definitely worthy. And like I said, if you want to extend it to those members as well, cause they are touring as the time, you know, make it like when Funkadel Parliament Funkadelic got inducted. You had the mob <laughs> up there all giving thank you speeches. You know, the ones that were, that are still around at that time to do that. Um, like I said, this is something I want to campaign for. Um, and I hope it happens, you know, soon, you know, within the next couple of years for sure while we still have all seven walking the planet and doing amazing music we should just do you know have that as part of it so but what do you think um like i said if you're a longtime listener of the show um then you know where i stand and hopefully you are all in agreement but hey leave me a comment let me know your thoughts and while we have a few minutes left, I think I'll go ahead and still do our spotlights. So our artist spotlight for this episode is Tony Mosley of the New Power Generation. Um, you know, that name has been coming back up with the legendary Tony M. has been coming back up uh, due with the pending release of... The Diamonds and Pearls box set. Um, quite the controversial figure, depending on just, you know, your level of hip hop enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, um, I know he's gotten a lot of flack. And, you know, if you listen to the story of Diamonds and Pearls on the Prince podcast, uh, the official Prince podcast, um, you know, he he really made a lot of sense to me in that that is not an easy job where you have somebody like Prince. You know, nowadays we call it branding, but a brand such as Prince at that time, 
And now myself and a lot of other people across whether the country or the world, you know, came up at an age where hip hop was that rising force. You know, um, I mean, I was 13 when Rapper's Delight came out. And, you know, like I said, we're at that age. So, yeah, we could listen to Prince, you know, or we were indoctrinated in the funk because, you know, coming up in the 70s, you know, by the time we hit 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, Bootsy's Rubber Band, Parliament Funkadelic, they were dominant. Um, but coming into those 80s, you know, we were listening to the funk, we were listening to Prince, we were listening to Rick James, we were listening to Cameo, but we were also listening to, like I said, uh, Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, Run DMC, um, LL Cool J. So, again, like I said, it's just about what you like. You know, it's about what you like. But to mix the style of Prince into hip-hop, it wasn't an easy transition. Some things worked better than others, I'll admit that. Um, but like I said, he caught a lot of flack as a rapper because it's like, well, the Prince crowd isn't going to really go for it. The hip-hop crowd really isn't going to go for it. But I do think that he did the best that he absolutely could with that. Um, it did help take Prince to another level. I mean, I did like get off. That was the track for me. Um, I remember watching Graffiti Bridge, and I think the focus at first was on T.C. Ellis. And I, you know, not gonna knock his rap style or anything like that, but it didn't, you know, because I think for me, I knew the difference. It's kind of like, okay, I'm not gonna compare these cats to Rakim or KRS One or Ice Cube or whatever. I'm not gonna do that, you know, or Chuck D. I'm not gonna do that, you know, I'm not gonna, because it's two different things. And Minneapolis is a different city than New York, and it's a different city than. You know, any city in the West Coast, whether it's L.A. or Oakland. And it's just a different vibe. It's a different, you know, yeah, it's just a different style in that. So I would say, you know, he did the absolute best that he could. And really, to be honest, like I said, the, I think the focus at first was T.C. Ellis, you know. But to me, I thought Tony Mosley was definitely stronger as a rapper. And like I said, some tracks work better than others because you. the thing is, number one, you weren't working with, you know, your conventional hip hop production. You're dealing with a live band. Even if there was a drum machine, Prince wasn't approaching it the way a hip hop producer would have approached a track. So, you know, Tony was given the difficult task of really just being versatile. And yeah, in that execution, some things work better than others. Um, there's things I appreciate better than now. There's things with, okay, in hindsight, like a track like Jughead, you've heard me say this before, where I think because of the type of song it was, that the rap style needed more of a kind of like a Flavor Flav. It needed more 
of maybe a shock D slash Humpty, you know, Humpty hump type thing. Instead of trying to sound like Chuck D doing a rap song, you know, like where the choice that was made for Willie and Abel, perfect choice, excellent choice. Uh, Call the law, excellent choice. Things have got to change. I've liked some of that. Um, let's see, brother with a purpose. That was the thing where, because on that new power generation maxi single, um, you had there was T.C. Ellis part in new power generation part two, and that was cool. That was okay, but brother with a purpose. That song was it. It was next level. As far as like Minneapolis, the Minneapolis sound trying to go into hip hop. So, like I said, there are things to definitely champion. And like I said, I'll probably get some hip-hop heads that'll, you know, where, like I said, you know, Prince fans of the hip-hop heads be like, oh, get out of here. But, like I said, given, and like I said, listening to that interview, he did the best he could with what he had to work with. And like I said, I think it, it, it worked to a specific point. Maybe if they would think more outside the box a little bit, or more if they were allowed to do, you know, because you had Kirky J there where even later in Prince's sound, you had more of the sequencing and more of the samples and more of the stuff because Kirk Johnson kind of understood that. I think if you kind of let him do more of that, had let him do more of that and put Tony's vocals on top of that, then I think you probably would have been on to something really big. Or I think that would have helped put the Minneapolis rap scene even more prominent on the hip hop map, I think. But I can say, you know, shout out to Tony M. Glad, you know, that you get in the, you know, it's the Diamonds and Pearls, the box set. So we get to hear these songs again. We get to hear stuff in the vault. So we probably get to hear some more gems coming. And, you know, at some point, probably in another couple of years, we'll get that love symbol and we'll probably get to hear even more. But, hey, what do you guys out there think? You know, what was your opinion of Tony M? Great addition to the new power generation, that lineup. Um, what do you think? Leave me a comment and let me know your thoughts. All right. So, moving on to the album spotlight. And if you are a Patreon supporter, um, you've heard me at least talk about the CD to this, but I'm just going to now talk about the album in general. And the album spotlight on this episode is Alexander O'Neill's debut album. This was released in 19... 1980 it was 1985 when this came out um i was a little late to this album um meaning that i didn't get it in 85 i got it in 86 um i did like the lead off single innocent a lot um to me it was like son of get it up and i think that i always felt like this is jam and lewis kind of like sticking it back to prince for you know him firing them from the time 
like, okay, you know, we have some success now. You know, we got two albums from the SOS band under our belt, you know, and the Gladys Knight and the Pips track and this track and that track, Patty Austin, you know. So, and, and we get more work coming in. I think that was sort of like a little dig or, you know, if it wasn't animosity, it was a good homage to the Minneapolis sound as we knew it at that time. Um, but the next single, If You Were Here Tonight, I think that was the thing that made me really decide to go ahead and get this album. And I do have the vinyl. Uh, maybe I'll do a vinyl CD uh, comparison, uh, probably more so as a Patreon exclusive. Um, but this album, I think, is one that I enjoy a lot. And it's one I think that was pretty influential on me as well. You know, um, I can't sing anywhere near like Alexander O'Neill, but you know, you catch me, I'll sing along to this album all day, every day. Um, like I said, Jam and Lewis, uh, you know, we're becoming huge fans of their production style. Like, I was like, wow, you know, Prince really lost an opportunity getting rid of those guys not that prince needed any extra help but you know when you look at like something how george clinton or the wu-tang clan you know where there's you know everybody gets to shine you know everybody gets to participate you know if you wanted to do a paisley park records right you know jimmy jam and terry lewis and monty moore jelly bean you know they probably would have been some cats to keep you know when you look at motown you had Smokey, you had Holland Dozier Holland, you know, banging out these hits. But then you had underneath Norman Whitfield, you had Ivy Joe Hunter, and you know, you had a stable of, you know, Norman Whitfield, Barry Strong. You know, you had a lot of producers just under that were still contributing major, major hits to those Motown artists. So it's like, if you wanted to really had done Paisley Park right, these would have been the people to keep. So, you know, you could have still produced the family, you know, but they could have, I don't know, you know, brought in some talent and, you know, it probably could have brought Alex back and put this out under Paisley Park. Who knows? But, you know, but what happened happened and couldn't happen any other way. Uh, but I'm glad that, you know, like I said, this is an extension to their success. Um, I don't know what this did as far as pop chart success, uh, but definitely R&B. And like I said, if you were coming up in that era and especially if you were a musician and you wanted to write songs or you wanted to produce, this was one of the ones to take notice of um, just to see Jam and Lewis next level you know because we already heard what they could do with the sos band you know we've heard the shirelle album the first one and it was like okay you know these cats mean business and i mean they brought the funk <laughs> you know and this is no different um even though you had um jam and lewis had um broken heart can men it's one of my favorite tracks uh like i said i love this album from beginning to end uh, but side two, um, like I said, they kind of brought the funk, the Minneapolis funk, innocent, what's missing, 
Uh, you were meant to be my lady, not my girl. That's another favorite. Um, I don't know. Who knows if I might do a ranking of just my favorite songs on this album. Um, but like I said, you had Monty Moore. Like I said, uh, if you were here tonight, is probably the biggest hit from this album. Uh, but my favorites are the two tracks after that produced by Monty Moore. Do you want it like I do? Look at us now. Um, like I said, I can't sing anywhere near as good as Alexander O'Neill. But like I said, I will sing along to this all day, every day, every time I put it in the CD player or if I put the vinyl on. This is the album. <laughs> um you know, and they were able to build off of that success with a hearsay, even though that think that's the more popular album. Uh, that was so strong as an album that this one gets swept under the rug a little bit unfairly. But this is no, by no means weaker than hearsay. And it is by no means a weaker album in any sense. Um, and yeah, it is one of the few albums i would say whether you're talking 80s on it is one of the few albums that i play not only beginning to end but i enjoy every single track from beginning to end uh and again you got again the reasons why the time as musicians should be considered to be part of the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, not only did you have Jam and Lewis on the production tip, uh, innocent, the guitar solo. I think at first everybody just knew that was Jesse Johnson on the guitar solo. Come to find out it was jelly bean Johnson. Um, jelly bean Johnson's primary instrument was guitar. Uh, he switched over the drums and when it came to the time, um, backstory, Alexander O'Neill was going to originally be the lead singer of the time and Morris Day was going to be the drummer. But Alex, you know, just kind of want a little bit too much money, you know, wanting too much. Prince decided to just pass on him being the lead singer, decided to tap Morris to be the lead singer. And that made room for Jelly Bean Johnson to come in and be the drummer in the time but he can play some hella fat rock guitar some good talk <laughs> he can jam you know he can he can shred and this was a great guitar solo on that um but you know just pick you know pick this album up anywhere you can find it um you can probably still find the vinyl for a reasonable price um, the CD, uh, this one, as I mentioned in the Patreon exclusive about this particular CD release, as you can tell, this is a Japanese import, um, that I did get at a very reasonable price. Uh, originally, uh, this single CD at one point was like, you know, 30 plus dollars, which was ridiculous. And there was one point where it came down to a reasonable price and I just passed on it and then went back to go see if I could get it at that particular price. 
then it wasn't available anymore. But then just recently, this and along with uh, some of the SOS bands, Jam and Lewis produced albums, uh, those are available. And like I said, they're reasonably price you know your average price for a cd nowadays um so you know you can still find this one for that uh check amazon i guess um like i said the vinyl you can still get uh, i'll probably get around to doing a cd versus vinyl comparison uh, i'm going to do those just on patreon now uh so be on the lookout for that but yeah um there's so many memories attached to this one for sure um and glad to have the cd back uh like i said i do have the vinyl and but i just needed to have this back as a cd and better than the one i had before so alexander o'neill's debut album oh this little um this diner um i did get to see this diner it's in saint paul uh, i didn't get a chance to eat there but drove past it and it's like oh man that's the and this was in the video as well this uh diner was featured in the video as well and then if you look closely in the back you got jimmy jam terry lewis and monty moore right there chilling in the cut uh the band the fellas the crew so what do you think about Alexander O'Neill's album. Um, was this one of your favorites coming up in the 80s? Or if you came along later, getting into Prince and the wider universe of Prince and just checking out to see what Jam and Lewis were doing before they were producing Janet Jackson? Was this one that you took notice of? Or, hey, do you hold this in equal esteem to the Hearsay album? Which, like I said, that's the one that's kind of more memorable now for some reason. But again, you know, this was not a weak album either. So leave me a comment and let me know your thoughts. And from there, we're going to end this episode on the wish list, our Prince Estate wish list. And this episode. What I would like to see done is a box set, you know, not focused on a particular, especially with this particular era, uh, because the songs overlap. And I mean, from 93 to 95 or even into 96, there were a lot of songs recorded that just overlap because it was like, oh, well, it was going to be on this album. Oh, nope, it ended up on this album or it was gonna this close to being on this next album not now but now it's in the vault or you know it was it was so many songs such a really crazy but interesting period and given that we're talking about prince on this uh that's the thing that made it even more interesting and what i would like to see is a box set of the 93 to 95 recording sessions. And like I said, with this one, because you'll still have stuff that appeared on albums like Come and The Gold Experience and things like that, or even Emancipation or Chaos and Disorder. 
you have songs that were featured on those albums or ended up on those albums but to do those individual albums as box sets they run too close together because remember at one point come and the gold experience where prince's original plan was to have them come out the same day you know a la i don't know kanye or you know um think what is that frank ocean has done it put two albums out at the same time beyonce has put two albums out at the same time so that was unheard of for 1993 or even 1996 for that matter so to do a sessions era box set instead of focusing on an individual album especially this one that's so you know where even within that span of time you know four you know maybe count seven because emancipation was a three album set but you had at least three albums four albums running you know concurrently uh, as far as you know the availability of material um, there's a set of a popular bootleg set called the dawn to me that is the best template uh, you can look it up online to see what the track listings are. Um, maybe not those particular mixes. In fact, a lot of people think Prince did that and bootlegged his own stuff. But this was somebody like a, a fan that just knew how to mix and sequence songs well. Um, put that together. Uh, but that would be that's an excellent template for this box set uh, but you would go even further because I would make it maybe more than three CDs I'd make it maybe four or five um, you know or whatever the standard is you got one two yeah so about maybe five six CDs uh, that you can do because you also have multiple versions of things different mixes of things um, things that were edited that did get released um but they work better when you make it into a single whole track um things of that nature uh like i said there's different versions of come there's different versions of most beautiful girl in the world um you know i could just you know we can spend a whole episode just talking about what could be on it in fact leave me a comment let me know if you would like to see that as either a patreon exclusive or a topic for a future episode of purple notes unveiled uh but not only just because of the songs but the history behind that um you have where prince is dissatisfied with the you know sort of history making record contract that he made you know the famous hundred million dollar contract uh was very dissatisfied at what was at the top of the mountain and couldn't get out of it easily so he changed his name to the unpronounceable symbol and then later writing slave across the cheek and everything and you know while we were all trying to make sense out of it whether we were just trying to make sense out of it whether we were trying to, you know, whether folks were laughing at it or they thought it was weird. It put a lot of people off Prince. People jumped off the bandwagon. You know, it was a pretty heavy period um, trying to sort all that out. What does it all mean? You know, but he was trying to get out of his 
record contract. So, but when you look at how successful that tactic ended up being, you know, first starting in 96 and then the last piece of the, well, one of the last pieces of the puzzle was getting the publishing. That was 2000. So that allowed him to change his name back to Prince on that level. Then the eventual fight and acquisition of his master recordings of his, you know, Warner Brothers material. You know, so when you look at the accomplishments over the years, then it puts that whole name change and everything behind it in a better perspective. And he comes out the hero in that. So to be honest, it's not really recognizing a specific album, but to recognize that particular point in history where you're acknowledging or documenting historically the name change, the reasons why the name was changed, um, the ups, the downs, what songs were being recorded, you know, the book of essays to analyze, like, what was he going through? You know, what was he thinking and how was he feeling? You know, to document that in the you know, the sort of book of historical information that would come with it. Not, you know, and of course, some very, very great photographs. Also, uh, historical notes. You get Dwayne Tudhall in, provide the studio, you know, the notes on when what was recorded and how and why and when and where and things of that nature. Um, some really great live performances uh, that could make up, you, you know, again, your extra CDs, your sixth, seventh, or eighth CD of, you know, uh, live, you know, the last two or three discs being live performances, uh, the Blu-ray, this stuff, um, music videos that you can add to it. Um, you know, just the, what is that? The whole Glam Slam Ulysses. Um, you could probably include The Undertaker in that. I mean, you could make this a really massive box set. And I would probably say go no more than 10 discs. Um, or what you could do if you have something like The Undertaker, The Sacrifice of Victor, you know, those two where you, they're really the videos. That could be the single Blu-ray. That's your single Blu-ray right there. And then any actual music videos, that's your Blu-ray. Um, if there is a live performance that was professionally shot that you can clean up, that's your Blu-ray. All of that on one Blu-ray. You could probably fit on one Blu-ray. Um, like I said, lots of legendary concerts from that period, whether at Glam Slam, uh, whether over in Europe, some, you know, uh, you can probably include the Act 2, you probably could, or whatever was going on between, um, recently I was listening to the uh, concert at the DNA Lounge in San Francisco, this is from 93, um, you know, Prince was fighting the cold, and you can tell, you can hear it in the voice, um, but you know, I liked a lot of sounds on that. I liked the band, the way they were flowing. I liked some of the song choices. Um, pretty good flow to the concert. You could include that as part of it. Uh, if you didn't, you know, if you wanted to save an act two show for 
the symbol album box set or some kind of standalone. Uh, you can do it that way. Uh, but again, you know, there's so many memories. Uh, to me, I always call it my second favorite Prince era. Um, you know, like I said, everybody has their favorite. But, you know, me, you know, I like the evolution. And like I said, even if there was an album I didn't care for, he would come back with the next one. Or at least, if nothing else, the next album would be even more interesting than the one I wasn't feeling, you know. Or maybe take two albums. But, you know, kind of after Diamonds and Pearls and then after the Symbol album, for me, I think kind of when it started with the name change and then I think later that summer there was my Tay's letter to Controversy Magazine talking about what he was doing in the studio. And I think that was the first thing that right there was the thing that made me go, oh, okay, this is going to be deep. This is going to be interesting. And it, because to me, it brought back the mysterious, like that period, like 1983 and that Rolling Stone article, uh, you know, it's the Rolling Stone with Prince and Vanity on the cover, that article, that article best personifies the myth because that's all we had in 1983 he wasn't doing a lot of interviews and what few interviews he did he wasn't as open as what a lot of you fans were used to experiencing prince in real time from say 1997 forward wasn't as open but that mysterious you know the cryptic answers and is he black is he white is he this is he that that whole thing that's the thing that drew us in, you know, that's, you know, marketing 101, you know, that sold for us. And that article, if I remember it correctly, like I said, it personified the myth. Because, I mean, even as we got deeper as Prince fans, even though he wasn't doing interviews, we got a lot better at connecting the dots. So like post Purple Rain and especially sign of the times to like say Batman we got a lot better at connecting the dots you know at like okay we kind of figuring out what this cat is about and where he is so that starting like I said with that letter from my take two controversy that was the thing is like okay this is this is getting interesting again okay i'm i'm with that i mean i enjoyed the you know really i enjoyed the diamonds and pearls videos that was the thing that really sold me on that album kind of the same thing with the symbol album it's the three chains of gold all the music videos i enjoy the album better with the videos so it was great to kind of go back and see like okay he's really in on the songs this time not to say that he wasn't with the last two but this like i said it's kind of going back to basics like okay well now he's changed the lineup of the new power generation again and he's focusing on these songs and they all have a particular meaning they have some kind of a purpose a theme and it's like okay so i'm in on that and as it was kind of unfolding, even though the frustration was the battle with the record label because we weren't getting, you know, it was contractually obligated product, you know, like Come and then Chaos and Disorder, even though they have a lot of enjoyable songs 
And I don't have a problem with those albums. I do enjoy those albums. But where the gold experience was the one he intended. Emancipation was the intended album. So it was frustrating not getting those type of albums on a consistent basis. But like I said, if you put it in that, like I said, all of those songs in that context and then just issue come the gold experience, chaos and disorder, emancipation, just the standalone remasters and packaging, you know, maybe include one bonus disc of the highlights from this box set. I think that would be a great selling point and a more economical selling point. Um, but yeah, for the diehards and the ones, you know, where, okay, we got to go in on these box sets, you know, we got to support these things or we got to have these things in our collection. I think this would be number one, it would be unique. Uh, number two, it would focus on an era that doesn't necessarily have to do with the classic eighties era. Um, so you have a lot of fans that'll be on board just for that alone. Um, like I said, just the wealth of material, both the studio and the live performances. Again, you know, this is something that's unique. It's special. Um, for Prince fans in general, either the songs themselves or a lot of those shows, people have a fondness for whether they were experiencing it in real time in one way, shape or form, or whether as their Prince fandom grew and they started looking back and discovering these bootlegs or discovering certain albums, you know, again, and like I said, the, the, the whole journey of Prince, you got this documented as this transitionary period where this sets the stage. It separates what he was to what he was about to become even later in life and I think just to document that transition as opposed to each and each individual album I think it would be like I said too much material overlaps to make it work in that regard so with those and not everything needs a 10 CD box set not everything needs one no not every album I mean I don't care if there's stuff in the vault that makes you know that I would probably rather have had on planet earth, <laughs> but it doesn't need a box set to me, you know, um, you know, like I said, there's just some things where just due to sessions, you know, in this case, 93 to 95 or 96, uh, something like that planet earth era. So 2006 to 2007, you know, just do a set, a box set on the sessions it just issued a remastered album. And again, I don't know if that's a, that would be a two or three CD set, depending on how many songs he recorded in that span of time. Uh, but, you know, take the highlights and make a bonus disc for the standalone CD. But then, but like I said, the main focus is just on that specific era and it doesn't have to spotlight a specific album. But, what do you think? Um, is this a, you know, one of your favorite eras? 
Um, would you like to see it represented as an era as opposed to standalone albums, each one getting a box set, even though the material overlaps because the original sequencing was this song that ended up on Gold Experience or this song was taken off of Come and ended up on Chaos and Disorder, whatever. What do you think? Leave me a comment and let me know your thoughts. And that's going to end this episode of Purple Notes Unveiled. And if you enjoyed this episode, become a Patreon supporter and check out the video for the audio. Please download that that helps me gauge the success of it on the podcast platforms. Also, too, if you are watching segments on YouTube, be sure to hit like, subscribe, hit the notification bell or if you enjoy this show and you would like to check out other things that are actually sometimes exclusive to YouTube, uh, hit like, subscribe, hit that notification bell on YouTube and just catch up on the latest. Uh, also, if you want to support the channel, uh, go to richardcolemusic.com. Uh, I have t-shirts that are available. Um, one is a Purple Notes Unveiled t-shirt. Uh, there's an Amari Music Talk Create Your Day, Create Your Life t-shirt. Uh, be sure to check those out. Um, that helps support the channel, you know, because one day I'd like to just retire and work on creative stuff and just creative stuff, which includes the podcast and everything else, Amari Communications. So... Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. Thanks for supporting the music as well. And until then, create your day, create your life. Peace. Yeah. Mm-hmm.